Okay, if you'll indulge me, um, let's start with Johnson. Uh, 1616, the wonderful Johnson's first folio. Um, a remarkable publication for many reasons. Um, I'm starting this uh, for fun, but also because I think it's, 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 an, it's quite important. Um, we have a room full of people who are used to looking at books, looking books and describing books and talking about books. And I think one of the things that Johnson um, was fun to start here is because what, what these two pages tell us. Um, it's 1616. Johnson produces his, his complete works. Um, it's remarkable that, he, that this came out when it did, and he still had a long time to go. I think the thing that strikes me about this is that I, I'm not sure, and I, I would love to, to have someone tell me afterwards, um, I really don't know of any other uh, title page in front of us of a dramatic work that looks like this at this time, maybe not until the Restoration. And I think the questions that we have to, we have to ask is, what's he up to? What's Johnson doing here? Why does this look like this? Um, this sort of classical-looking um, page, um, very formal, uh, very done up. And then you have the frontis engraving, of um, the frontis portrait of Johnson, and he puts vine leaves in his hair. Um, it's really quite an amazing thing. I think what Johnson's doing, it's the first time that this has happened, um, the first time this has happened with, with, uh, with drama. What Johnson is doing here, it strikes me, is saying something about drama about plays, about playwriting. I think what he's saying is he's, he's, there's an equation here that Johnson is making uh, the work of the dramatist have something to do with classical literature, elevating, classical, elegate, elevating dramatic literature in some way. A very brave and a very bold thing to do in 1616, the year of Shakespeare's death. And also something that he, of course, received a certain amount of ridicule um, for. Um, Remember where the playhouses were in London. I mean, they were on the South Bank. They were the areas of pickpockets and prostitutes and prisons. And all of a sudden, Johnson's talking about uh, elevating dramatic literature to a, 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 different, a different sphere. Um, it's it's, quite, uh, it's quite, quite amazing, I think. Now, in this folio, uh, 1616 on the, on the left, one of the things that Johnson does is look at this curious thing here. The principal tragedians were. Um, at the end of every play in the 1616 folio, he lists the actors. Um, it's the first time that the players are associated with the art. Um, and he does it very boldly, and he does it after all nine plays that are in the, uh, in the 16, uh, 16 folio. It's a remarkable statement. Um, this is also interesting to us, of course, because we see Burbage and Shakespeare as the, two, as the names on the, at the top of each column. And you also see... Uh, John Hemming and Henry Condell, uh, right here, who of course significantly figure significantly in the 1623 folio. Now, what's interesting here, and the little line that I'm going to sort of try, be trying to draw, is the kind of thing that Johnson does, the principal tragedians in his 1616 folio. Hemming and Condell do when they start to print the 1623 folio, names of the principal actors. I mean. The, if I had, this is my favorite page in the first folio, I think. This is a remarkable page. And it's, I'm always sad when, we, when I open copies that, that don't have it. A good many of those names would be unknown to us if it wasn't for this particular play, if it wasn't for this particular page. And there, of course, you see them all. You see Shakespeare and Burbage at the top. And you go through and you see the list of the um, uh, various actors of the king's men at, at the time. 
It's a remarkable document, and I think there's a line you can draw from the 1616 Johnson folio to the great first folio of 1623. Okay, this is a Folger copy of the first folio, the very familiar Drozhart um, title page. Um, not very um, good portrait, uh, kind of almost like a cartoon portrait, but immensely important because it's the closest thing we have to a contemporary image of the poet. The first folio, 1623. And here Johnson shows up again. This is familiar turf to you folks. To the reader, uh, B.I. Ben Johnson um, did, it, did, the, uh, did the, the introductory poem here. This figure that thou here seest put, it was for gentle Shakespeare cut. Um, Johnson figures uh, significantly. Um, when the first folio was uh, being printed, um, Hemming and Condal were the only two actors from the King's Men who were left. Burbage died in 1619. Um, it was Johnson and Hemming and Condal uh, who, one might imagine, um, had a lot to talk about um, in, in uh, figuring out what this book was going to, going to, going to look like. So Johnson comes forward from the six, his own 1616 folio to write the, to the reader in the 1623 um, first folio of Shakespeare. Now, this is um, another wonderful bit of, of, of history here. Um, Hemming and Condal write to the great variety of, of readers. From the most able to him that can but spell, there you are numbered. We had rather you were weighed, especially when the fate of all books depends upon your capacities, and not only your, and not of your heads alone, but of your purses. Okay. Well, now it is public, and you will stand for your privileges. We know to read and censure, do so, but buy it first, for God's sake. Okay. Um, one imagines that they're in debt up to their ear, up to their ears, um, having produced this. Um, I think the interesting th one of the interesting things about the about the first folio um, is is not only its sort of monumental place in, in, in literary history, but I mean this was a book that it was printed um, without really knowing who was going to read it. Um, it was a tremendous gamble. It was it turned out, turned out to be a great economic success. But at this stage of the project, uh, when it first when F1 first appeared. Uh, you can imagine a considerable amount of anxiety um, over its, uh, its fate e e economically. Um, the Folger, of course, um, has a lot of folios. And I think one of the fun things is, um, is some of the copies that, uh, that, that we have um, this is one of my, my particular, my favorites. It's a copy of the third folio from 1664. And what you see here is from the Tempest on, the, on your, your right-hand side of the screen, my left, with uh, the hand of the Enchanted Island over it. Um, in fact, there's a pretty good argument that can be made um, that I'm, I'm working on right now, that um, this is Alexander's Pope's copy, uh, the, pop, the copy that Pope used for his um, for 1725 text. Um, you see a number of the scene headings that uh, map uh, exactly to uh, his 1725 um, edition. Um, there is at least two hands in, in this uh, copy of F3. One certainly isn't Pope's. 
but there's a pretty good argument that can be made that uh, this, this may have been that may have been Pope's copy. Okay. Let's talk about. Oops, I wanted to show you. This is another one too. Uh, let me go back here. I had one more Pope thing here. This is at the. Um, this is at the end of um, Two Gentlemen of Verona. Pope puts at the bottom this whole scene very bad. Um, Pope, of course, was free to pronounce in anything he uh, darn well wanted to pronounce on, and he gave Shakespeare quite a roughing up in some of the, some of the plays. Um, Pope didn't like Two Gents. Um, he didn't like it at all. Uh, in fact, at the end of Two Gentlemen of Verona, um, he finished up and he said his, his only comment was bad, very bad. And when Pope published his edition uh, of the complete plays, um, he actually moved uh, two gents back down a notch um, in the uh, in, in the sequence. Okay. It's um, October, and uh, the Abel Berlin sale took place at Christie's, uh, October two thousand one. And what I have here is I have an image of the folio um, that sold for over $6 million. Um, it's an astonishing, astonishing figure. Uh, and on the, on the left-hand side, uh, you're right, is, is, is the binding. Um, this is a book that the, for which the pre-auction estimate was 2 to $3 million. And the hammer price was $5.8 million. And once you settle up the fees that are involved, it's well over $6 million. Um, it's a record for the first folio. And it's had a lot of us kind of reeling um, ever since this happened. So in a sense, I'm going to use this, the Berlin sale in this particular copy um, as, a launching post, as a launching point to ask the question, um, in a market like this, in a market where a first folio can sell for over $6 million, what on earth are rare book libraries supposed to do uh, to compete in a market uh, of, of, that, of that nature? Not just for the first folio, but uh, a market that is prone to those kinds of, um, those kinds of spikes. This is the um, Lee Census number 75 copy of the first folio. It's the, um, formerly the Frank uh, Brewer Bemis copy, the Boston collector. Um, this was offered to Mr. Folger in 1916, and it was offered to Mr. Folger, and um, it was offered, quote, in the original binding. I'll have more to say about that in a minute. Um, but he didn't bite, um, and it, um, it, went, uh, it went elsewhere. Now, the points, I've tried to look at this book and, and decide, you know, what, what are the factors that would make someone um, pay that, that kind of money? Um, it's the third issue of F1. Now, for the first issue, there are only three copies in institutions. For the second issue, there's only four copies. So we're certainly talking, the third issue of F1, we're certainly talking about the degree of rarity for this particular, um, this particular item uh, could, be, could be argued. Uh, Christie's made a, a great uh, to-do of calling it complete. That is, it had Troyles and Cressida with its prologue, um, and only a small number of copies, um, of complete copies, remain in private hands, perhaps only, only five or six um, internationally. Um, the points were that it was, it's in an, a, quote, early binding. 
That's the phrase that was used in the Christie's catalog. Um, and last, um, a copy of F1, the Christie's made a point of saying that the copy of these, a copy of F1 with these characteristics hasn't appeared in auction in 16 years. Okay. Um, so there's a, there's a um, there's an element of scarcity that um, is, um, is, is, is at work here that's presumably you know, that's, that's drawing the drawing the, um, uh, the, the the moving the collector moving the moving the buyer kind of last chance mentality. There's a wonderful little booklet written by uh, William Reese called The Rare Book Market Today, and I just want to quote a little bit from this. Scarcity of supply is the essential issue in the modern rare book market. Collectors feel that the chance to buy an important rarity may be their last. Christie's plays on that in their description. Dealers wonder how they can replace stock once it is gone. Librarians wonder how they can fund purchases or if, or if the needs of their institution justify holding a fortune in a little-used little special collections. Okay. Um, so I think one of the things that we that we want to we want to ask is um, is is that true? Is that really an operating um, factor here? Well, then you look at the Antiquarian Book Review, and there's an article here from the um, April 2002 issue, and it's uh, how will the book trade survive in the 21st century? And there's a quote here. Um, they're quoting um, Stephen Rowe of Sotheby's, Tom Lamb of Christie's, and Rupert Powell of Bloomsbury. Uh, and they allow that supply is diminishing, though slowly, but they all deny that a secular decline in supply is underway. And Lamb is much more assertive than that. Thousands of books are locked away, books that are simply, books that are amply available. I, sus I suspect most top books sold in the 1990s to reemerge in, 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 in or around 2010. Most collectors, he asserts conf confidently, most collections, he asserts confidently, get sold in a lifetime. Well, these are two different these are two different versions, I think, of of, of sort of supply and demand. Uh, what Reese is saying, and and, uh, and what um, Rowe and Lamb and Powell are saying, um, and I'm not quite sure which to believe. Uh, I'm not quite sure which is um, which is which is right. Uh, my inclination is is I think with uh, with, with Reese. Um, but I think the point of this is, and, and the point of why you, you get a book that goes for six million dollars sale, because there is this little bit of kind of fear that um, this isn't going to come around, uh, come around again. Um, scarcity of supply is an essential issue, I think, in, in the mentality in the, in, in the market. Okay, now, um, but on the sort of flip side with this, with this, with this book. Um, this copy, a number of leaves have been supplied, and this is documented as, as, from as early as 1913 when Korch um, supplied the title page. Um, so you have a $6.2 million book with the, with, uh, the title page supplied, and um, it's, it's not a heavily made up book, um, so it's complete, but, as you, but you have to understand that leaves have, have been added. Maybe a lot more that were described in the auction, um, auction catalog. Now, the binding, which is described as an early binding, um, and much is made of that in the, in the description, uh, is in fact late 17th century or early 18th century. Um, and 
um, you know, nothing near near contemporary. Um, we actually have some that are. We don't have many early uh, bindings in our folios, but we do have we have do have some that are, that are earlier than this. I think the question is: Is any time a seventeenth anything that re, it's like a seventeenth-century binding that comes around for the first folio? Um, there's lots of uh, lots of to do about it. Um, the other thing that shows up in this is uh, much is made of, of the provenance um, of the copy. Uh, it's called a quote charming association. It has a charming association with Dryden, and this is mentioned um, four times uh, in, in the description. Um, it, the fact that it's Mary Dryden, uh, the great niece who died in 1762, and not John Dryden, the poet, who died in 1700, um, seems to, to, to slip, slip away. Um, I, I, don't, I want to be careful here. I mean, I don't want to be, to be facetious, uh, but, it, but I also do. Um, because I think one of the things that we have to be careful of um, is, um, is is descriptions that appear in, in auction catalogs. Um, I'm not sure that all the cataloging that goes into preparing the entry uh, appears in the entry. And I think a good deal gets edited out uh, for, for business reasons. So you find the things that, that appear in boldface or in capital letters um, to be, I mean, things that sell books. And I understand that. Um, but I wonder about it. Um, wonder about it as, as well. Um, and I will give you an example here. Um, this is also the Berlin sale, and this is a 1632 folio. Um, of course, one of the things that's significant about the 1632 folio is the epitaph here. Um, is Milton's first published poem. So, I mean, F2 has its, has its um, has its attributes as well, but the one that appears in this in the in the catalog, uh, in Christie's catalog, is quote a large copy in the freshest possible condition. I'm not sure what that means, um, but that's uh, that's how how the work um, was, was 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 presented. Um, the estimate for this, by the way, was eighty thousand to one hundred and twenty thousand. The hammer went down at $250,000 for a fairly undistinguished copy of F2. Okay. Um, this is the third Berlin's third folio. Um, and this was probably the most, well, I, the, the third folio is very interesting. I mean, it's the rarest of the folios. There are fewer of them extant than any um, than, than any of the edi four editions. Um, this is a this is a this is a particularly interesting copy. Um, it's, it strikes me. Um, the provenance. Uh, this was a copy that was owned and signed by Richard Farmer. Farmer was the master of Emmanuel College and the principal librarian at Cambridge. Uh, he was also the author of an essay on the learning of Shakespeare, which is an important essay. Um, on, on, on sources, the Shakespeare sources. Um, it's also, this copy is also signed and annotated by William Henry Miller of Britwell Court, and it went through three generations of, the, of Christie Miller's. Um, it's also a, a Bemis copy, and it went through Rosenbach and Fleming to Berlin, who bought it in 1971. Now, the interesting thing about Berlin is um, he didn't spend a lifetime 
to collect four folios. He bought them in one go. He bought them in April 1971, and he bought all four Bemis copies, and he kept them for 30, 30 years, and then he, then he, then he sold them. Um, so this, the provenance of this is, is, is interesting. The fact that it's, it's the rarest of the, fol of the folios um, is, is of interest to us. Um, we have fewer copies of the third at the Folger than any of the other, um, than fewer uh, than any of the other um, additions. Uh, we have we have 23, um, but only seven or eight um, are, are, are could be considered complete. Um, now, the the third. Uh, this is the second the second issue of the of the, of the third folio. For the first the first issue uh, was reprinted from F2. Uh, but contains seven added plays. Now, you get a bit of marketing here because if you look at that list of seven plays, I mean, only Pericles is sort of one that's come down as part of the, uh, part of the canon. Um, so you, get, you have a little bit of book selling here, too, that's going on. Plays added, attributed to Shakespeare, whether or not they're written by, um, by, by, the, by the poet. And presto, you have a, you know, you have a new edition. Um, the first issue appeared um, without the added plays or the portrait on the title page. Um, and I can show you that, um, 1663. Now, if, if I had all the money in the world and I was going to go into the Shakespeare market um, and I, could, I could, uh, could pick and choose, I mean, I think collecting the third folio would be a very interesting thing to do uh, because of its different, because of the different ways um, that it appeared. The way that the um, the first issue appeared, um, some copies appeared without the seven plays added. Some copies appeared uh, with the, with the frontis. Others appeared without. Um, it would really be an interesting um, thing to have them all in in a, in a private collection. Um, and of course, it's the beginning of, of it's a, in a sense it's the beginning of bardolatry too, of attributing things to Shakespeare that you know whether or not they're written by by Shakespeare um, or not. Um, I mean, it's just a fascinating, it's a fascinating time. Um, 1663, 1664 uh, precedes the Great Fire of 1666. And these books did not get outside of London. as, as, as uh, They did not have time to get distributed. Um, many of them were burned. Uh, many of them were lost in the, in the Great Fire. Um, it's the, other, the other ones, um, their distribution networks had a chance to uh, have some effect in terms of getting them, getting them dispersed. Um, the estimate, um, the estimate on the on the third was two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. It sold for five hundred thousand dollars, a half a million dollars. This copy, um, and this this is remarkable. So the first goes for six point two, right, six million. This, the second goes goes for um, uh, what did I say? Two hundred and fifty. Um, the third, five hundred thousand dollars. Um, it's really quite astonishing. Um, you know, the auction world for a place like the Folger has become a spectator sport. You know, uh, we get the catalogs, we look at them, uh, we learn from them, uh, we, of course, uh, we collect them, uh, but there's precious little that we can do uh, in, a market, in a market like this. Um, I'll finish with um, uh, the with the fourth folio, 1685. Um, this is the George Daniel copy. Um, it's the Marsden Perry copy. Perry was probably, probably the greatest American collector 
of Shakespeare before Folger. Um, it was touted as being in a restoration binding. Fourth folio is, is, is unusual for its height. Um, it's printed on larger uh, paper size to increase the number of lines per page and de decrease the bulk of the book. So even with its seven, even with its seven extra plays here, right? even with the seven extra plays, uh, the number of sheets in the fourth folio is almost exactly the same as F1 and F2. Um, the estimate here was also $200,000 to $300,000 is sold for $240,000. Um, it was within the estimate. It's the only of the it's the only of the uh, only only edition which was which fell within the, the estimate. Still, there's some major money that's um, that's going here. Um, a couple a couple points about this. Um, Reese says, my estimate of the world rare book market today is an annual sales total of 400 to 500 million dollars. 400 to 500 million dollars worldwide. Um, I hasten to repeat that this is a guess, although an informed one. I've actually seen the figure, uh, figure very close to that I'm quoted elsewhere. Um, although I, an informed one based on close scrutiny and several decades of nonstop gossip. Um, the actual number is not as important as understanding that, compared to the larger art and antiques market, it is not that big. It is not that that large amount of money. And in terms of private capital in the world today, minuscule. Now, 400 to 500 million dollars, to people like us, it sounds like an enormous amount of money. But let me phrase the question in a different way. How many Impressionist paintings would 500 million dollars buy? Seven, five, nine, twelve, right? And that's the entire—that's the estimate of the entire rare book, rare book market. Um, so you have uh, an interesting phenomenon here, and 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 that's what—that's um, I think one of the things that Reese is Reese is getting at is you have an incredibly competitive market. If you if you um, if you greeted the hypothesis that it's, that it's also a, that scarcity is a factor here, and that expenditures are in that kind of a range, and that uh, the private money is, is, is what's, what's driving the, the, the operation at this point, um, it it doesn't look like institutions have much of a, much of a chance. Um, and I'll give you a statistic on this: um, institutional buying in the rare book market in 1974. Uh, institutions commanded about 40% of the market. That's a lot. Um, in the year 2000, that's estimated to be 15% at most. 1974, 40% of the rare books were purchased by institutions, 40% of the market. In, in 2000, 15% of, of, of the market. So I think what's happening here is that collectors, not institutions, have come to dominate the modern uh, rare book market. Um, something we've had a sense of for a long time, but it's, I think, only since the Berlin sale that I began sort of trying to think this through and think through some of the, some of the, some of the issues. And I'll give you an example outside of Shakespeare. Um, the Swan Auction catalog of April 2002 had a wonderful item in it that we desperately wanted. 
Um, and you might not think that this is such a that, that this is sort of a typically a Folger item, but it, indeed it is. Um, Giordano Bruno, uh, a um, an item came out. Two important metaphysical works composed during Bruno's eight, uh, 1583 to 1585 stay in England. This book was um, also owned and signed by John Florio, um, the Italian translator. Bruno and Florio um, are wonderful items in the in the Folgers um, Folgers collection. The pre-auction estimate for this book was fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars. Okay. Um, we spoke with Arthur Freeman, and Arthur said, um, "Well, this is a great book, and I think it belongs to the Folger, but you know, you better be ready to go a little bit deeper into your pockets than that." Uh, and he was saying forty-five, fifty thousand dollars. So we scratched our heads, and we uh, uh, scratched our heads again. And um, what we decided was that we're going to go after this book. Um, this is an end of year, major end of year expenditure. It's something we want in the collection. And we put together a strategy to go into the Swan auction ready to pay seventy to $75,000 for this book. Okay. This is big bucks for the Fulcher. This is very big bucks. Um, we were blown out of the water. It went for $110,000 just like that. We didn't stand a chance. My guess is that um, an institution probably didn't buy it. That it went to a, it went to a collector, and um, you know we won't see this again for uh, for a while. But those kinds of spikes um, are, are extraordinary. You know where where a place with some resources and a place with a, with a real um, a real sort of strategy um, going in ready to spend three times the auction estimate um, doesn't even doesn't even have a have a, have a chance. Um, and that, you know, happened uh, three weeks ago. <clears throat> so uh, the question I'm the question I'm I'm, I'm posing here is um, what what can we do? What can libraries do in the face of a Giordano Bruno market in the place of, in the face of a Berlin sale? And where can we possibly go? Now, keep in mind we're not giving up. Um, our, our acquisitions budget is, is three, almost four times what it was when I went to the Folger in 1984. Um, we have 23 uh, restricted endowments for acquisitions um, that are really doing quite well. And we do, um, you know, we think we're, we think we're players uh, to a certain extent. But the point is, um, there are players and there are players. Places like the Folger are shut out of the high end of the market. We still buy our STC books. We still buy our wing books. We still are finding finding things, but we're only finding we're only we're only acquiring about 10 to 12 STC books a year. Um, you know, 30, 35, 40 wing books um, a, a year. Now, granted, a lot of that is because we already have them, right? And these are things that you know that, that are already in the collection. But still, I mean, that's a that's a that's a that's a trickle that's coming into uh, coming into the collection. And when we get into the, um, the high-priced um, items, um, it's, 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 really, it's really very, very difficult. So um, one of the things that we have to do um, is think about, um, to think about how the collection is going to grow. Um, what can we do in, the, in, this, um, in this highly volatile, uh, volatile market? And where are, we going to, where are we going to go with these things? Well, what we're finding is that um, 
the, uh, the wing market is still very, very um, interesting. There's a lot of things in the restoration that come up on the market that, that aren't particularly expensive. And we're finding a lot of things in the 18th century and especially the 19th century. We're finding our Shakespeare in the 19th century. That's what we're finding. And um, there's a couple examples here that I, that I, I want to show you. The book, the image on your left um, is, is really quite a wonderful, a wonderful item. Um, it's Ellen Terry's rehearsal copy of Othello, and it was owned, uh, annotated by her and Sir Henry Irving for their roles as Desdemona and Othello. And on the inside front cover, as you can see, she writes, prompt book, please return to, uh, to Miss Terry. Um, okay, the association is, is there, certainly, that's lovely. Um, but what the editing shows in this, in Terry's hands, um, there are lines cut throughout the play but the majority are, of the lines that are cut are in the last two acts, and mostly from the bedchamber scene of act, of act four, scene two, and basically lines that Terry won't say, or won't say quite as they've come down. So um, she'll substitute shame for whore, wanton for strumpet, and then changes Shakespeare, that cunning whore of Venice, uh, to that cunning one of Venice. What you have here is a kind of living, breathing example of of, uh, of, of the 19th century sanitizing a text by no, none other than, than, than Ellen Terry, um, a, a great item. Um, the portrait on the left, uh, my left, you're right, uh, is, a, is a miniature framed portrait, um, a watercolor on ivory, 19th century. And, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say um, it comes from an ant a group antique store on Maryland's eastern shore. Uh, Werner found it one weekend, and he's immensely proud of this. Um, and sort of any images of, of, uh, of, of Shakespeare from the 19th century are, are, are nice additions to the uh, nice additions to the to the collection. Um, other things that have that have come through. On your left is Henry Irving, his presentation copy of his prompt book for Richard III, and. What he says here at the bottom is, it was one of my fondest possessions, um, which is quite something. Um, and then the program on the um, the program on the uh, uh, on your right um, is the is the program for Irving's premiere at the Lyceum Theater on January 29, 1877, uh, on which is written. I'll, I'll, I'll read this. Um, the first performance of Richard III, arranged and adapted entirely from Shakespeare by Sir Henry Irving. Holly Sivers' version having held possession of the stage, this a wonderful achievement, documenting um, Irving's, uh, Irving's, Irving's performance. Okay. Um, our friend Mr. Furness, um, this is a wonderful, a wonderful piece here. Um, on your left, a letter from 1864. I prefer to read Shakespeare's plays for the sake of the plays themselves, for their own charms and beauties and grandeur, than anything outside or external. The plays are written to make money and to fill the theater, not to teach history or uh, illustrate morals. The historical plays violate history flagrantly at every turn. Study the plays themselves and never give a thought when they were written, nor from what sources they were drawn. Well, the nice little irony of this is there were two Folger readers who helped us acquire this letter to Folger scholars, which is a nice moment. Um, we're mad for Emerson because of the Emerson association with, um, with Mr. Folger. Uh, Mr. Folger attended a, a lecture by Emerson at Amherst College 
1879 in his senior year, and um, it, 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 it ignited uh, a passion and interest in Shakespeare. Of course, it carried him through for the next 45 years of his life. Um, on your right is an autographed letter sent to Emerson introducing um, uh, Carlyle, uh, introducing uh, Emerson, introducing uh, William Charles McCready to, um, uh, to to Emerson. The bearer of this is Mr. Creedy, our celebrated celebrated actor. Okay. Uh, a nice association copy here, uh, Henry Irving to Sir John Barrymore. Uh, presentation copy inscribed, uh, Dear Jack, uh, here you're studying Hamlet. More power to you. They tell me my Hamlet is good, and the king calls me Sir. <clears throat> but I hope yours is so good that they make you a duke. Best of luck. <laughs> You, get, you got that. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, now, on the um, the other thing that I that I think I I want to say that is influencing some of our pattern of collecting is that one of the things that we're finding at the at the Folger is that the path of scholarship is increasingly leading to non-catalogued collections. It's increasingly leading to non-book collections. We're finding scholars interested in a multiplicity of formats. Uh, we're finding scholars wanting to work much more uh, with objects, much more with manuscripts, with artwork. Um, and this is an example of the kind of thing that, that, that we've done. This was a gift that, that was negotiated, um, the Babette Craven Collection of Theatrical Memorabilia. And it's something I must admit that I didn't have much of an appreciation for when I first went to the Folger because I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the significance of this in, in, uh, uh, in the world of research or, or scholarship. I didn't understand the significance of it aesthetically. Um, but in fact, Mr. and Mrs. Folger collected quite seriously um, in objects, uh, in porcelain, in enamels, in all kinds of things. Their collection was largely 19th century. The Craven collection came forward. Uh, we were... We were uh, our bell was rung on this one. We went up to New York, we talked to the family, and what we discovered was a collection which goes back to the age of Garrett. It predates anything Mr. and Mrs. Folger did in this period. It goes back to about 1740, and you find the entire age of Garrick um, recorded uh, in three-dimensional objects um, uh, in the Craven collection. So we did an exhibition. We did an exhibition as soon as we could to let the family know our interest in what we were going to do with this. Um, and this was done in, in 98. The figure on the title page of the catalog is Paul Pry, um, who captured the attention of theater goers um, in, the, in the 19th century, um, other figures of Pry. Um, there were a number of, of the, the condition of these objects was, was extraordinary. Um, we, had a, we had a Siddons scholar who was working at the Folger at the time um, who, who uh, Heather McPherson, who couldn't wait for us to get this stuff out of the box. She couldn't wait till we brought, it, brought pieces up into the reading room. And fortunately, we had a pretty good inventory, and we knew what boxes the Sidden stuff was in, so we brought it up right away. But she couldn't wait to get um, her, her hands on it. Um, and as you can see, I mean, it included the, the scene on the, on the left. Um, it included uh, playbills, um, oval miniatures of actors at the time, um, Master Betty, was a child sensation in the 19th century. Um, Betty actually um, uh, drove Kimball from the Kimball from the stage with a, with a popularity. It's it's, it's uh, astonishing. Uh, 
but this was a, a, such, a, such a raise. What you have here is a kind of snapshot of, um, uh, a snapshot of, of theater and performance history through this, uh, through this collection. Um, I love this. Um, it's the enamel portrait of Sarah Siddons. This is 1798. Um, Siddons, an immense figure in the history of the London stage, um, who had a very difficult beginning, uh, was treated very badly by Garrick, uh, was driven to the provinces, triumphed in Bath and in Birmingham, came back to London and just took London by storm for, 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 for decades. Um, this very sweet, uh, you know, this, this, um, this enamel, is the size of it is about three inches by three inches square. It's a beautiful piece. Um, but the odd thing is, it's, it's, of, uh, it's of a character that few of us um, recognize or know. It's Siddons as Mrs. Haller, and apparently Mrs. Haller was one of, one of um, uh, Siddons' favorite, favorite characters. She's done up there to, to look like uh, Mrs., Mrs. Haller. Now I have to talk a little bit to you about, um, um, about Garrick. Um, we have accounts um, of Garrick, the great actor-manager, 18th century actor-manager. We have accounts of Garrick, of Garrick and his triumphs uh, on the stage, where theater goers will describe um, his delivery, his manner, his costume, his posture, his tone of voice, everything about uh, what Garrick did, the way he captivated um, audiences. And he must have been a truly extraordinary man, just the way he crouched and kind of sprang forward to deliver some of his, his key lines. Well, what you have here in the Craven Collection are three-dimensional objects which show Garrick in the costumes that are described in contemporary Theodore's accounts. Show them in the pose, show them in the posture, uh, the way that he delivered some of his signature uh, roles. Garrick, I, 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 Garrick was a little bit like Elvis. His image was everywhere. It was on saucers, it was on porcelain, it was on enamels, it was on any, anything, it was on tiles. Um, he absolutely captured the, the attention and imagination of the late 18th century stage. And of course, what came with the collection, you see some of the um, uh, playbills. Uh, Richard III, one of his signature roles, um, pl played, by, uh, played by Garrick. Of course, if you're going to, uh, once you realize that Garrick is so Im important uh, to, the, to the figure, I mean, you, to, the, to the period, um, you know, we have, a kind of, we have a kind of insatiable appetite for Garrick. Um, he's, he's, he's such a pivotal figure in theater and performance history. And so Garrick in any media um, is, is, is important. Um, these are, are, um, are drawings by Henry Fuseli. Fuseli, the Swiss um, artist, um, born in 1740, died in 1825. He spent 50, 50 years um, in London. Um, there is some evidence that Garrick's, that Fuseli's sketches of Garrick, uh, you know, came as he's sitting in the theater during a performance the way that he would capture Garrick in, in sort of rough sketches and then go back to his studio and work them up into drawings and ultimately um, in, into, into paintings. Um, fascinating figure, Fuseli. I mean, he, he was uh, a contemporary of Blake, um, someone who was very much kind of um, shunned uh, for a time of his life, not really, not really appreciated, um, but thank God that he lived and worked in London time that he did and recorded some of the things that, uh, that, he, that, he, that, he, that he did. Um, Garrick as Macbeth and two, um, two acting versions um, here. Um, I want to um, show here 
Um, this is what I mean about Garrick's image appearing every, everywhere. These are about the size of a 50 cent piece. Um, they're front and back uh, oval medallions of Garrick on one side and Shakespeare on the other. We've had these things in exhibitions and people are just, are just sort of amazed um, at uh, the refinement. He, um, he, he, he painted these, they sent him over, of course it wasn't a success. Um, we were asked uh, two years ago to send, if we would send our Fusilli to Parma, Italy, to the Magnani Rocca Foundation for a retrospective on Fusilli and Shakespeare. So um, we did our homework, uh, did the facilities report, and we decided that we were going to, going to send it. Well, that was the beginning of our, of our of the story. Because what we have here is, uh, on the left, you see the frame. Fusilli hangs in the new reading room, and it was in a, it was in a 19th century frame that had been heavily gilded. And um, you couldn't read the legend on the top. The frame was cracking, so we needed some restoration work before we sent it away on, uh, on, on loan. Well, what we discovered in the process of having it prepared for loan was that this wonderful painting, which is, which is considered uh, by many to be Fusilli's masterpiece, um, was in its original frame from 1793. Um, and when the work was done and the legend was uncovered at the top, uh, we found the act and scene. Um, and I've had the great pleasure to be in Parma for the opening of this exhibition. And there, in a single room, were the five Fusilis from 1793 from the James Wood Mason Irish Shakespeare Gallery, all hanging together and all with the legend on the top. Something we learned, um, something we learned uh, from this experience of, of, of lending. The reason I'm so happy about the reason I like sort of telling this story is because the Folger has had a history um, back of being a kind of reluctant uh, lender, and um, I think lending is one of the I think lending is one of the ways that um, we share information about the collection and uh, get our collection in front of in front of other people. And this is an example example where there was a happy return to it. Um, okay, there's another category about building collections. Um, obviously, the kinds of things that I've that I've done are, are showing uh, attention to other other formats. The other collection about the other uh, aspect about building collections is what I call getting lucky. Um, the image on the left is is a, the finest painting in the Folger collection. It's a 19, 17, uh, 1579 portrait of Queen Elizabeth. It was attributed to George Gower, Sergeant Painter to the Queen. Uh, this came to the Folger as a gift, as a gift from the, from the, uh, from the Plimpton family. It was promised to the Folger, to, to the library in the 1980s. Um, it came to us on her passing um, in 98. And it's now, when you come to the Folger next, uh, look at it in the founder's room. We've given it uh, pride of place. Um, it's, a wonderful, um, it's, it's a wonderful addition to the, to the collection. If I had to name one book, that if I had to name one book that I think has been the most important single acquisition over the last 10 years, right, last decade of collecting, I would probably vote for Spencer Shepard's calendar, which is on the screen to your right there, uh, open to the month of January. Um, 1579, um, dedicated to Sydney, who Spencer had only met the year before. It's astonishing that, um, that to see that name on the, on the, on the title page. Um, this is the book that established um, Spencer's poetic genius among his contemporaries. Uh, we were very, very lucky to uh, very luck lucky to, to, to get that uh, through a gift purchase uh, arrangement. Um, the story of Colin Clout, who uh, laments the treatment of his beloved Rosaline through the through the seasons. Um, it's written. It's put together like a book of hours in twelve sections, and each section is written in a different meter. 
and it's a poetic tour de force, and you had a sense that Spencer must have known that, and felt pretty good about it, and uh, dedicated it to uh, to, uh, to 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 Sydney. Um, this is one that we did nail down in the auction from the auction rooms. It's a 1623 um, copy of a warrant. Uh, by the Lord Chamberlain, uh, which is um, which which uh, is an order to the to the magistrates in the provinces against the uh, abuses daily committed by diverse and sundry companies of, of stage players. Wonderful sort of wonderful sort of uh, sort of moment. Of course, the Kingsmen were a licensed company. Um, this is the kind of activity that, in the provinces that would uh, they would need to uh, see doused. Um, if they're going into uh, into towns, uh, would, would, have, would have been uh, would have been successful. Um, this is uh, when William Herbert was Lord Chamberlain. What's interesting about this? It's the first um, it's the first uh, authored um, SDC item uh, by by William Herbert. We were, we were really happy to uh, really happy to get this. Okay, um, I'm closing up, and my last category um, is called casting the net. And this also has to do with looking at other formats and um, the way the way collections um, are, are are growing and going. Okay, film. Um, I was chatting uh, with someone today, actually. Even um, we've had um, we have people at the Folger, and I'm sure there are undergraduates um, that you know. Um, they didn't find Shakespeare through print. They found Shakespeare through film. And there's an incredibly rich film archive out there that um, is are important documents and part of performance history. Um, the Folger had better pay attention to collecting those, um, and we do. Uh, the first Shakespeare on film is from 1899, silent film of King John. So we were fortunate enough to, to get a copy of that. And so we are very interested in, in building this archive right through the latest uh, films that are being produced today because people like Peter Holland and others are giving seminars in, uh, in Shakespeare and film. And it's an archive that needs to be, um, that needs to be maintained. So you have the Branagh Much Ado and you have the wonderful Ian McKellen, Richard, Richard III, um, part of our responsibility as a research library. What about this? Uh, classic comics. Um, we have uh, Hamlet and uh, Romeo and Juliet, Classics Illustrated. Uh, these are from 1955. Right? We can't afford these anymore. Right? This isn't a market that we can play in. Um, and fortunately, what we are doing is we are cultivating uh, some gifts uh, of this, this, kind of, uh, this kind of material. Um, which says uh, a lot about uh, uh, contemporary culture, which says a lot about um, how Shakespeare was, was, was treated uh, in different media um, through time. Um, and it's, it's a market that's already outrun us. And it's not to say that we couldn't rechannel resources and, 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 play in this, and play in this market, but it's, it's, um, it's another market that we just sort of see, see speeding away from, um, uh, from our capabilities. Okay, the great Ellen Terry. Um, these 
are photographs, 19th century photographs, which have come to the Folger within the last six months. And they're from the William Winter collection. William Winter was the biographer of Ada Rian, uh, the 19th century um, drama critic, um, remarkable for who, he know, for who he knew and uh, his circle of friends and acquaintances. And um, the Winter Archive uh, landed with his great-grandson, who lives in Sacramento, California, who called me one day because he'd heard about what we had done with the Craven Collection. You see? Um, and we had a nice chat on the phone. And the Winter Collection is now uh, coming to the, to the, to the Folger, um, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. Um, Trump books, playbills, correspondence, photographs, and all kinds of, all kinds of things. Um, I had quite, you can imagine my shock when I was in the exhibition hall of the Folger um, some weeks after um, this conversation with, the, with the Robert Young, the great-grandson. Great and I'm, I'm walking out of the west end of the, of, the, of the wonderful exhibition hall, and I look up, and there's a quote, a quote about Shakespeare, William Winter. The Garrett quote is at one end of the exhibition hall, and the Winter quote um, is as, as, as another at, at the other end. And uh, Robert actually told me last week that he found uh, Winter's original draft, his, his fair copy of, the, of that poem that uh, later, of course, became that Mr. Folger found and wanted to use in the, in, in the library. So these, these are the kinds of things that are, that are, that are coming, to us, uh, coming to us now. One more of, um, of Ellen Terry, loving Nell. <clears throat> um, I didn't know she was called Nell. Um, and then one other example, Craven Collection, Winter Collection, and one other, um, the Bateman Sisters, uh, American actresses who performed um, on the American and English stage in the 19th century. Um, we're in conversation now with um, a person who's holding the keys to this archive and is starting to send us, um, send us some, some things. Um, and so here are, um, here are examples of um, early playbills with the, with the Batemans. Um, right there, the two, with the, with the, two, um, the two sisters. So I think one of the things that, that's, that's interesting is um, um, how can we play? Well, we have to play. Um, we have to be attentive, I think, in, in the way that collections are growing, being attentive to different markets, uh, different formats. And the, of course, one of the reasons I mentioned this too, there's also a tendent responsibility of uh, conservation, housing, bibliographic uh, control, bibliographic description. Um, these are difficult issues. Uh, this, this is a kind of turning point for the Folger in which we really do have to pay attention to non-book formats. We have to pay attention to um, uh, electronic finding aids, um, to EAD, uh, to the kinds of things which are going to make these truly documents that are able uh, to support study and research um, in theater and performance history. And I think that's um, my 60 minutes. And I'll leave you with an invitation to visit this wonderful place and to use these wonderful resources. Thank you very much.